Franklin County, Tennessee, a county rooted in its diversified topography. The hills, viewable from Winchester, are enriched. Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around, a watch she can wear every day from Movement. Whether your mom is into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, Movement has something she'll love. And right now, everything at Movement is up to 50% off site-wide during their Mother's Day sale. A watch is a gift that celebrates all the time you spent with mom. And a Movement watch is even more than that. Movement uses industry-leading materials for their fresh modern watch designs, from technically complex ceramics to vintage-inspired style, all for an incredible value your wrist and wallet will both love. And with one-size-fits-all convenience and fast-free shipping and returns, it's a stress-free shopping experience. Save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with Movement. Get up to 50% off site-wide during their Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. ...with stunning cascades and waterfall end caves... The grandeur of the hills arise to sublimity. The forests that engulf Franklin County are rich with wildlife and food. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. A beautiful area for any family venture. That was until a small group of teenagers discovered a forest fire off a Waltz Road in the early hours of the 1st of July 2012. The teenagers reported the fire to the authorities, innocently believing it to be an abandoned bonfire, but hidden within the roaring flames. Something far more sinister was waiting to be uncovered. People say Ted Bundy didn't show any emotion. I showed emotion.
before we delve into this case, I'd just like to talk about the sponsor for today's episode and give a massive thank you to the people over at Ridge for helping to keep this channel afloat. The Ridge wallet is an amazingly light and sleek wallet made specifically to hold cards and designed beautifully to fit into any pocket. With two metal plates held together by a durable elastic band, it's super easy to fit the cards you need for your day-to-day ventures inside and to only take the cards you need with you. So it's time to throw out your old bulky wallets and switch to this amazing, incredible slimline wallet. The Ridge wallet comes in a large range of colors and styles, including carbon fiber, aluminium, and titanium. So you are sure to find a wallet that'll suit anyone in your life. It makes a great Christmas present. And the kind people over at Ridge have hooked you all up with a little holiday deal. Head on over to ridge.com forward slash Joshua, choose from their stunning line of wallets, and make sure you use code Joshua to get 10% off at checkout. Again, thank you to Ridge for sponsoring this episode. And with all that being said, let's delve right into this case. Erica Megan Sharpton, known as Megan Sharpton to all those who knew her, was born on the 24th of October 1987 in Tullahoma, Tennessee. Megan was born into a comfortable family, with both her parents and grandparents being around during her upbringing. She was actually one of seven siblings. Megan was described by her friends and family as being one of those people who were always good at what they did. She was intelligent, had a quick wit, and knew how to get things done. Megan was also known for her contagious laugh and her ability to cheer up anyone with just a smile. Her personality was genuine and authentic. She was caring, polite, and loving towards everyone in her life. Megan's family moved around a lot during her childhood until they eventually settled in Winchester when Megan had been in high school. Despite the move, she was very quick to form close relationships with other students at her high school. According to one of Megan's friends, Megan treated everyone the same, regardless of whether you were a janitor or someone higher up. She didn't see the social constructs of defining value, a person's value, based on their job position. She just saw the world as it was and treated people with kindness. At the age of 13, Megan developed a love for CSI and true crime programs, a love which she shared with her friends. Megan would actually go on to tell her friends that, quote, that would never happen to me. I'm too smart for that. And this wasn't a lie. She was extremely smart. Megan achieved consistently high grades at school, and she soon set her sights on nursing school. Megan's caring and compassionate personality saw her naturally drawn towards a career in nursing, a career which would fulfill her caring soul. It was a perfect match for her. It was also a job that would challenge her intellectually. And Megan's mother was beyond supportive of her career goals. The bond between Megan and her mother was unbreakable. They were the best of friends. Megan applied to and was accepted at Shelbyville Technical School, which was located in Winchester, to study to become a nurse. To keep herself afloat during her studies, 
Megan applied for a job at a local restaurant, which she was accepted for. Megan would work as part of the wait staff at the restaurant in the evenings, after her classes and at the weekends, and would occasionally travel back to her family home. She lived on or close to campus during her studies at the nursing school. Megan drove a 1995 red Ford Mustang to and fro her classes, workplace and her family home. She always made sure to let her mother know what her day-to-day -day plans were, which was the root of her mother's worry as evening came around on Sunday the 1st of July 2012. Megan's sister had come into town that Sunday, and so the family had planned for everyone to come over that Sunday evening for a family meal, though Megan had to work a shift at the restaurants that afternoon. Megan spoke with her mother on the phone that Sunday, telling her that she was just about to clock in at work. She also told her mother that she would be dropping by an elderly lady's house, a possible patient, after work for a little while, which wasn't something that was out of the ordinary for the 24-year-old nursing student, before she would drive over to the family home, arriving for around 5 or 6pm. Though, as 6pm came around, Megan's mother began to grow concerns. Megan hadn't yet shown up for the family meal, and she knew how important the family meal was to Megan. It was extremely out of character for her to have not made contact to say if she were to be late, and so Megan's mother decided to start phoning her daughter to try and find out where she was and what the holdup was, but all her calls went to voicemail. Where was Megan Sharpton? Much later that Sunday evening, as the midnight moon gleamed in the sky, a few teenagers had come together to drive back home following a party. On this drive, they passed over the Awalt Bridge, which spans Timsford Lake in Franklin County, just outside of Winchester. The teenagers immediately noticed the red flickers of fire coming from within the forest surrounding the lake at about 1am, going into the 2nd of July 2012. The group of teenagers were very much aware of the risks associated with bushfires and the devastation such fires can cause if left to its destructive ways. And so they decided to phone emergency services to report the uncontrolled flames. 911, what is the address of your emergency? The authorities were immediately dispatched to investigate the forest fire and to determine whether the fire service needed to be contacted to contain the flames or whether the police could simply extinguish it themselves. That particular summer Sunday, even going into the evening, was very hot and dry, with temperatures reaching 104 degrees Fahrenheit or 40 degrees Celsius. The last time it had rained, even just a slight drizzle, had been almost half a month prior on the 17th of June. It's safe to say that concerns that this fire could spread were fairly high. A quick assessment needed to be made by the nearby police officers swiftly. The responding officer, a singular deputy, arrived at the scene of the fire where the teenagers had been waiting about 10 minutes after their call to emergency services. Though, when this police deputy arrived at the scene, it seemed as if the forest fire had begun to start burning out. 
a crisis averted. However, the retreating flames of the fire revealed something that would turn this simple call-out into a full-blown murder inquiry. The police deputy discovered charred remains at the foot of the fire. It appeared immediately that the fire had been intentionally set and was constructed in a similar fashion to a bonfire. The charred body had sustained numerous injuries and it was clear to the police deputy that whoever this was before him was no longer with us. The body was that of a young woman and she had been found partially clothed. The police deputy requested backup and began to cordon off the area as a crime scene. He also ensured that the teenagers that had reported the fire to the authorities didn't go anywhere. They may know something more about this discovery than they had been letting on. The first major obstacle that this police deputy had to overcome was preserving the crime scene. A crime scene that currently had a fire destroying potentially vital evidence. A fire extinguisher may be the first port of call that comes to mind, but using one would actually destroy vital evidence on the body and in the surrounding area due to the force in which the compounds within the extinguisher are fired. So how could this police deputy extinguish the fire while preserving the scene? The old-fashioned way. Water. The police deputy grabs a bottle of water from his vehicle and gently pours the water over areas of active burning on both the victim and the crime scene. This method was the least destructive manner in extinguishing a fire with the limited resources the deputy had on hand at the time. The Franklin County Sheriff's Office was notified of the deputy's discovery and they scrambled units in the area straight to the scene. The area in which the discovery had been made wasn't very notable. It wasn't an area where a lot happened. It was just a place that you would see as you pass the Tomsford Lake and promptly forget you'd ever seen. It was boring, it was remote, and the nearest building was a church located up on a hill. There was no form of civilization in that area. The next nearest neighbor to the church was across the lake itself. Despite this, it wouldn't have been suspicious to have seen a car parked up in this kind of area around the lake, as a passerby would have presumed the car's passengers to be going for a walk around the lake or taking part in other water-based activities. Initially, observations of the young woman's remains determined that she had sustained a major trauma to her head, and it was highly likely that she had died as a result of this trauma before being dumped and set alight. A further observation was made at the crime scene regarding the way in which the fire had been constructed. It was determined that the fire appeared to have been made in a way that concentrated the flames on the private regions of the victim. Such a construction of a fire made it clear that whoever had been responsible had intended to use the fire to destroy identifying evidence. As you can imagine, this observation gave the initial indications that this murder had been sexually motivated. Was it a murderous spouse or boyfriend? Was this a crime rooted in adultery or jealousy? The police decided to talk with the teenagers that had called in the fire to try and find out any more information. The two teenagers told the detectives that they had been playing pool at a friend's house and that they had been on their way home when they had seen the flames in the forest. The two teenagers were extremely distressed and they were both sober and lucid. The investigators quickly determined that it was highly improbable 
that they had any actual involvement in the crime that had taken place, no more than innocently calling in a forest fire. This left investigators with one major question. Who was the young girl that lay before them? Detectives began carefully examining the charred body in an attempt to uncover any identifiable attributes. They had been unable to locate any personal possessions at the crime scene, such as a driver's license or mobile phone. Further, no missing persons reports had been filed that matched the description of the victim before them. But the detectives knew one thing. Whoever this was, was someone's daughter, sister, she could even have been a mother. They were determined to figure out their Jane Doe's identity as quickly as possible. It was then that the crime scene photographer noticed the t-shirt that the victim had been wearing. The t-shirt appeared to be somewhat unique due to the design located on the left breast. The graphic itself detailed a nursing class which the victim had presumably been a part of. This clue was vital in uncovering the identity of the young woman. The detectives knew that a popular nursing school was located nearby and determined it to be highly likely that their victim were a student of that school. The crime scene photographer then discovered some visible star tattoos on the victim's ankles and on her neck. The investigators decided to utilize social media to try to identify their victim. They made a post on their Facebook page asking for any information about a Jane Doe found in the Alwalt Bridge area. They described the young woman as being between 18 and 25 years old with dark brown hair and a tattoo of a large star with smaller stars on the back of her neck and on her right ankle. Unfortunately, this Facebook post has since been removed and my team and I were unable to find it on any archival records, though we were able to locate this breaking news article that was published the same day as the discovery on the 2nd of July 2012. Woman's body found burns in Franklin County. The body was found in the Awaltsbridge area northwest of Winchester. Authorities asked that anyone with any information about the incidents or the body call the Franklin County Sheriff's Office. The Franklin County Sheriff's Office promptly received five separate calls from different parents who were worried for the safety of their child. One of those concerned parents who had called the county sheriff's office was Megan Sharpton's mother, Kelly Sharpton. Kelly had phoned after seeing the post on Facebook due to Megan not returning home the day before on Sunday the 1st of July 2012. She informed the investigating officers of how her daughter Megan hadn't returned home for dinner as had been planned and she was asked to describe her daughter over the phone. Kelly describes Megan as having long hair, being 24 years old, and having small star tattoos on her ankle. Kelly's description of Megan matched the description of the investigators Jane Doe to a T, something that Kelly had been praying wasn't the case. She had hopes that maybe Megan had gone out to a party or had been held up and was safe. So when the investigators told Kelly that they were going to come over to speak with her, she knew deep down in her guts that something was very much wrong. The police pulled into the Sharpton family driveway and with the blue and red flashing lights flooding through Kelly's window, she knew that she had to brace herself for the worst. The officers politely asked to come in and sat down with Kelly at the family's dining table. It was there that they gently informed Kelly 
that they believed they had found her daughter Megan's remains. The world fell silent for Kelly as she hung on to each word that left the mouths of the officers sat in front of her. Though what exactly those words were, Kelly had no clue. They passed through her like an airplane through a cloud, a cloud that quickly morphed into a dark thunderstorm. The reality hit Kelly fast, and the investigators were desperate to extract any information out of Kelly, with the notion of the first 48 hours following a crime being the most vital at the back of their minds. They needed to piece together a timeline of events and try to establish the key characters within Megan's life. Kelly was a strong woman, and she knew just how important it was to answer the police's questions right now. After a few moments, she managed to compose herself, forcing the pain, the anger, the denial, the grief to the back of her mind, emotions she would confront after the police had left. Kelly told the investigators about the same timeline of events we discussed earlier in this episode, of how Megan was supposed to come home for a family dinner as her sister was in town, of how she had gone to work at her usual gig at a local restaurant, and of how she was supposed to be meeting an elderly lady who may become a potential patient for her. Kelly also told the detectives that Megan's sister had also phoned Megan on the day she went missing. The phone conversation was brief and was made shortly after Megan's sister had arrived at the family home for dinner. Megan's sister simply told her that she had now arrived and said to come over as soon as she's able. That was the last known communication that any member of the Sharpton family had with Megan. The investigators then came to a sudden realisation. Where was the 1995 red Ford Mustang that Megan drove everywhere? She would have driven it to work and driven it to the patient's house. So where was it? Authorities issued a bolo alert, or be on the lookout alert, for the red Ford Mustang, which effectively meant that all the officers in the surrounding area were informed to keep an eye out for any vehicle matching the description, and to call it in if they found anything. The bolo alert was actually issued statewide in Tennessee and in North Alabama. They hypothesised that the perpetrator may have stolen the vehicle and may have used it as a getaway car. Investigators knew just how important it was to locate Megan's car. It could hold vital clues as to what happened to her. As the conversation with Kelly, Megan's mother, drew to a close, she asked the detectives a question that would be pivotal in this case. Have you spoken to Megan's boyfriend? The investigators hadn't been aware that Megan had a boyfriend, and so immediately asked Kelly for his contact information. Megan's boyfriends immediately became a key person of interest in this case. They knew the murder had been sexually motivated, and the likelihood that the perpetrator knew Megan was in a relationship with her, was even family, was extremely high. The police went straight over to Megan's boyfriend's apartment to question him in relation to this case. They asked him when the last time he spoke to Megan was, and he told them that he had tried to call Megan while he was on his smoke break during work the night before, but she hadn't answered his call. From what I can gather, Megan lived with her boyfriend and another roommate on or close to her campus. The fact alone that her boyfriend hadn't reported her as missing and hadn't really shown any concern for her whereabouts when she hadn't come home and hadn't answered his calls was suspicious to the authorities. 
He justified this by claiming he thought Megan had simply crashed at her mother's home after the family meal and that she would probably come back home in the morning. He said that he didn't know anything was wrong until that morning. He further claimed to have not noticed anything out of the ordinary in the days leading up to Megan's murder, neither in her behaviour or in her mood. The detectives then asked Megan's boyfriend for permission to search the apartment to which he agreed. They combed through the apartments as if they were looking for a drop of water in the desert, and they made a shocking discovery. In the bathroom of the property, they found blood spots, and in one of the bedrooms, they found two used syringes. As a result of these discoveries, the detectives decided to bring both Megan's boyfriend and his roommates in for further questioning. And it was while they were walking to the police car that one of the detectives received a call detailing that Megan's 1995 Red Ford Mustang had been found. The Red Ford Mustang had been found 20 miles away from the location of Megan's body, and the vehicle showed no signs of a struggle or forced entry. They did find a handwritten note on the passenger seat of the car, written in what was later determined to have been Megan's handwriting. The note was simply an address. When the detectives ran the address through their database, they discovered that the address simply didn't exist. Who had given Megan this address? Why had she written it down? Where was she going? The authorities towed Megan's car in to undergo forensic analysis. While no obvious clues had presented itself within the vehicle, there very well could be microscopic evidence hidden from the naked eye, though this forensic examination would be a process that would take a few days at best. The detectives knew that their time was running out, and they had to chase every lead until they found something. They decided to begin the interrogation of Megan's boyfriend. He was a key person of interest in the case, as he might have been holding back vital information. When Megan's boyfriend was questioned about the blood spots found in the bathroom of his flat, he claimed the blood to be the result of a heavy nosebleed that he had suffered. Suspicious of this explanation, the interrogating officers asked Megan's boyfriend whether there had been any kind of physical altercation between the couple, to which he replied by saying that there hadn't. Megan's boyfriend denied any wrongdoing in their relationship. He claimed that it was healthy. Sure, they had a few arguments every now and then, but it was only verbal and nothing serious at all. The detectives then asked Megan's boyfriend whether he objected to undergoing a polygraph examination, and he agreed to the polygraph. If you've been on my channel a while, you'll know my thoughts on the polygraph and how inaccurate they can be. I discussed this in my Orange Socks murder case. I'll leave a link in the iCards above. There is a reason that polygraph tests are inadmissible in court. Let's just leave it there. Megan and her boyfriend's flatmate was interrogated separately from Megan's boyfriend, and this flatmate gave the detectives a strange impression. They confronted the flatmate with the syringes found in his bedroom, suspecting that the flatmate's illegal hobby might have played some role in Megan's death, Perhaps it was a drug deal gone wrong. The flatmate categorically denied that Megan or her boyfriend had ever used illegal drugs, as far as he was aware. He stated that even if Megan had begged him for drugs, he wouldn't let her do any. 
He further claims that Megan wasn't even aware of his drug use. The closeness and the protective nature that Megan's flatmate portrayed in his responses to the police indicated that perhaps there was something more going on between him and Megan. And as it turns out, there was. Megan and her flatmates had been having relations behind Megan's boyfriend's back. The detectives finally had a potential motive. They speculated that Megan's boyfriend had found out about her relationships with their flatmates and had snapped. They knew her murder was one rooted in sexual rage. The evidence fits the hypothesis, but was it enough to close the case? The authorities brought Megan's boyfriend back in for questioning. As soon as the interview commenced, they asked him if he was aware of the relationships between Megan and their flatmates. Megan's boyfriend's reaction to this actually surprised the detectives. He was flabbergasted, taken aback. His reaction to the information was genuine. He was shocked and angry. Though the detectives knew that even a reaction that comes across as genuine could be faked. They questioned Megan's boyfriend. Maybe he found out and went into a blind rage. Maybe he didn't mean to kill Megan. But Megan's boyfriend continued to deny ever hurting her. He stated that even if she had completely betrayed him, he would never harm her. Just as the investigators were about to give up hope, Megan's boyfriend revealed that she had received a phone call from a strange man a few days before Megan's murder while she was at work, and Megan's boyfriend had been the one that had answered this call. The stranger on the phone asked for Megan to come to the phone and said that they were looking for someone to come sit with their elderly grandmother. As we discussed before, Megan was a nursing student, so such a request wouldn't have been initially considered abnormal. Megan's boyfriend explained to the investigators that he didn't know who the caller was, but that the caller had said that a person who will call Chelsea for the purposes of identity protection had recommended Megan for the job. So who the hell was Chelsea? Megan's boyfriend went on to explain that Chelsea had gone to nursing school with Megan, but was in the year above her, and that they were friends. When Megan returned home from work that evening, she rung this number back to look into the job offer. However, neither Megan or her boyfriend had made notes of the phone number that had called her, using the caller ID in the phone system to call them back. So who was this strange man on the phone? Detectives were determined to get to the bottom of it. There was a love triangle, blood in the bathroom, motive. Everything was there to potentially solve this case, but it didn't answer so many of the questions raised. Why had Megan driven to the location where her car would later be found? Whose fake address was on the handwritten note? And who had given it to her? Who was this strange man on the phone? Did this call even take place? Was it part of a cover-up? If the detectives could answer those questions, they knew that they would be able to close this case. Investigators turned to the autopsy report to try to find some answers, and the pathologist who had conducted the autopsy had some interesting news. The pathologist had managed to successfully extract semen samples during the autopsy, and those samples meant one major thing. The investigators now had the DNA of the killer, though sadly, the autopsy further revealed a shocking detail. 
Megan had actually been shot from a low angle, with the entry wounds on the lower right area of her face heading in an upwards direction. It was determined that the caliber of the weapon was a 22. These two pieces of forensic evidence, DNA and ballistics, was immediately sent off to be analysed and compared. If the perpetrator already had DNA in the database, they would be able to find out who had killed Megan, though the search may easily come back without a match. As they waited, the investigators decided to chase the leads that had arisen during interrogations. Who was Chelsea? Detectives drove over to Chelsea's listed address to speak with her. They wanted to find out who she had recommended Megan to, but when they knocked on Chelsea's door, a familiar face answered. Donnie Jones was the man who answered the door at Chelsea's address, and he was well known to the police as a convicted felon. After a brief conversation with Donnie Jones, Chelsea came to the door and denied recommending Megan for any job. She said that there was not a chance that she would have recommended her. Absolutely not. Now, this was very strange to the detectives. The person who had been on the phone had allegedly claimed that Chelsea had recommended Megan, but Chelsea denied doing so and gave an impression that she actually disliked her. A few days later, both Megan's boyfriend and their flatmates passed their polygraph tests with flying colours, and since there was no concrete evidence to charge either of them with anything related to this case, the police were stumped. The alibis checked out. They went back to the drawing board. Even more disheartening to the investigation, the forensics reports conducted on Megan's red Ford Mustang details nothing significant or of note. It was clean of any evidence. Megan's mother, Kelly, made a public appeal on television for any information relating to her daughter's case. Almost two months after Kelly's televised appeal, Megan's mobile phone records were delivered to the investigators, and these records revealed an important clue. A prepaid cell phone had made a call to Megan's phone on the night she was murdered, was this the break in the case that the detectives so desperately needed? The police were able to trace the prepaid phone to a retailer in Megan's hometown of Tullahoma. And luckily for the police, the retailer had functional CCTV security cameras. On the day that the prepaid cell phone was purchased, the CCTV images revealed 9 to 12 customers purchasing that exact prepaid phone but only one of those customers stood out to the investigators. This customer's demeanour was suspicious, and it made the detectives ask themselves a key question. Why was this customer buying a prepaid cell phone when he very clearly had a nice cell phone which he had placed face up on the checkout counter? Investigators then followed this customer on the CCTV out of the store and into the parking lots, where they saw him get into a red pickup truck. Following a series of calls made to investigators in neighbouring counties, they were actually able to positively identify the customer as a man called Timmy. What was Timmy's involvement in all of this? Was he the one that they had been looking for? A bolo alert for Timmy and his vehicle was immediately issued, and by the following day, Timmy had been found. 
Police officers rushed to question Timmy. And it was during this questioning that Timmy reveals that he had actually bought the phone for a friend. It even transpired that it was this same friend that had actually sold Timmy and his brother the red pickup truck seen in the CCTV images. Did this friend even exist? Was this an attempt at a cover-up? Investigators didn't believe Timmy's story one bit. That was until Timmy told them the name of this friend. Donnie Jones. Donnie Jones had been living with Chelsea, Chelsea being his wife, the person who had allegedly recommended Megan to the stranger on the phone. So if Donnie Jones was in fact the person on the phone, what was Chelsea and Donnie hiding? The detectives then went over to Chelsea and Donnie Jones's home and asked them to consent to a search of their property. But it was as Chelsea was about to agree to the search that Donnie Jones stated that he needed to talk to his lawyer. And unfortunately, the detectives hit yet another stumbling block. Donnie Jones's lawyer instructed him to not permit a police search without a warrant. And the police didn't have substantial grounds for a search warrant. And so they decided to watch Donnie and the house, take a look at what he got up to, who his friends were. Miraculously, as they were staking out the house, one of Donnie's children came cycling up beside the detective's car and let it slip that his father, Donnie Jones, would take him shooting. Donnie Jones was a convicted felon and he was banned from owning any kind of firearm. This was enough for the detectives to apply for a search warrant and so they did and it was granted and they located a 22 caliber rifle. Forensic testing determines that the 22 caliber rifle that was in Donnie Jones's possession was a match to the weapon used to shoot Megan. Donnie Jones was then arrested on firearms-related charges and swabs for a DNA sample. The authorities were then able to use this DNA sample and compare it against the semen sample found during the autopsy. And it was a match. Donnie Jones had met Megan briefly when Chelsea had been a student at the same nursing school as Megan. And it was when Donnie Jones had first met Megan that he set his eyes on her. Donnie had taken Megan's cell phone number from Chelsea's phone and staged a nursing job using the prepaid cell phone he had his friend buy, a job which he knew Megan wouldn't turn down. He then gave her a fake address, leading her out to a patch of land in the middle of nowhere. When Megan had arrived at that patch of land in her 1995 red Ford Mustang, Donnie Jones pulled up behind her in his red pickup truck, a truck he would later sell to try to dispose of any evidence. Megan then got out of her car and happily walked over to Donnie's vehicle. It was then that, from the seats of his red pickup, Donnie Jones shot Megan at point-blank range in the right side of her face. As can be inferred from the DNA evidence, he then proceeded to rape Megan as she died. Donnie Jones then put Megan's body in his car, drove to the land near Tom's Ford Lake, built a small fire and attempted to burn her remains, destroying any evidence. Donnie Jones had raped and murdered Megan Sharpton simply because he wanted to have sex with her. He ended the life of a talented and loved nursing student to satisfy his own sexual desires. 37-year-old Donnie Jones was charged with first-degree murder felony murder, two counts of aggravated kidnapping, and two counts of aggravated rape. 
who pled guilty to the charge of first-degree murder and was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Justice was found for Megan and her family, but sadly, the family would face yet another tragedy. On the 8th of November 2013, just over a year since the murder of her daughter, 47-year-old Kelly Sharpton passed away. The cause of death isn't public knowledge. We can only hope that despite two tragedies in the Sharpton family within a year and a half of one another, that the Sharpton family are able to find some peace and move forward, keeping both Megan and Kelly close in their hearts. Make sure you're subscribed to this channel and you've hit that bell icon so you can be notified every single time I post a brand new Curious Case episode. Let me know what you thought of this case down in the comment section below. Follow me over on Twitter and Instagram if you'd so desire. If you want to see a case covered on this channel, then head over to requestacase.com and send in your case submissions there. And with all that being said, I'll see you in the next case. say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.